How many of you like to listen to NPR? Do I have any fellow NPR listeners out there? That's good. We, we like NPR, and you hear all kinds of interesting stories and interviews and things there. And one day I was listening, and I heard a story being told of someone who attended a wedding and observed that the photographer for the wedding did not show up until halfway through the reception. And you can imagine the, the judgment that went on in the mind of this observer towards that photographer. But the photographer set up and finished pictures and took whatever, and this person went away with negative sentiments in their heart, as you can imagine. That's the most important day in many people's lives. And later, this person heard a group of people talking about another wedding that was being planned, and he said to them, listen, whatever you do, don't hire such and such photographer, because if you do, this is what happened, and this is what I saw, and it might happen to you. But someone else in the group said, oh no, I know that photographer very well, and that's not what happened at all. In fact, the photographer who had been hired for the wedding was a no-show. The photographer that came halfway through the reception was already uh, photographing another wedding that same day and came to salvage what he could as a favor for the family that didn't have a photographer. And I wonder, as I'm thinking about this story, if sometimes perspective and information make all the difference in the world with the judgments that we make. Because it's quite a different story, isn't it, with the photographer? when all the facts are in. And I wonder if sometimes not having the right perspective and not having the right information causes us to have the wrong judgment. Has that ever happened to you? I know that it has happened to me, and I'll spare myself the embarrassment by telling those stories. But sometimes perspective and information can also influence the way that we interpret Scripture. And Hopefully, today as we're looking at our scripture passage that we want to focus on today, we can have the right perspective so that we can come to the right conclusion about what we're looking at in God's Word. And for me, uh, the sermon title today gives it away a little bit. For me, the right perspective for biblical interpretation is to look through the eyes of Jesus Christ. When we look through his eyes, when we have his vision, when we allow him to teach us how to read, then we can come to the right conclusion, and we can come to the right judgment, and then we can act accordingly, according to the will and to the perspective and to the teachings and to the actions, to the example that Jesus sets for us. So the scripture that we're going to focus on today is found in Matthew chapter 18. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Matthew 18, yes, it is our go-to scripture for conflict resolution and church discipline. And uh, I thought that was a very appropriate uh, subject for today being Mother's Day weekend, since as a mother, probably at least 85% of your time is spent managing conflict and discipline. Wouldn't you agree with that? So a special Mother's Day sermon, um, I feel you ladies, I feel you. Uh, but Matthew 18 has been used specifically uh, for 
conflict resolution and especially within the church. And maybe, maybe you've had a problem with a fellow church member and you go to complain to the pastor or to the elder and the pastor or elder will say to you, what? Have you done Matthew 18? So just to refresh our memories, just in case you haven't read it in a while, we're going to read it together. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. And uh, if you have your Bibles, please feel free to follow along. And this is what it says. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and show them their fault just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, you have won your brother or sister over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if they still refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, how come I didn't say any, hear anyone say amen? How does that sound? It's so heartening, isn't it? Doesn't it make you want to rise up out of your pew this morning? I actually think that the beginning of this is very good advice. And wouldn't you say so? That it's good advice that if your brother or sister is slipping, or if someone has wronged you, that the best thing to do is to go to them one-on-one -on -one in person and to talk it out and to resolve your differences. I think that's good and wise counsel. But from there, I'm not so sure that we have gotten it so right. Because usually, how we interpret this is that we, we have these very neat steps for discipline and confrontation. If, if someone doesn't listen when we go to them, when they've sinned or offended us, if they don't repent or apologize, then, then we go and we get reinforcements, right? And we come with our reinforcements and then we do what verse 16 says to do, which is to bring our back up and we double team them with our accusations because we're going to make sure that they really know what their faults are. And then, if they still don't listen, then it says that we are to take it to the whole church. And I wonder if, if, if the overwhelming accusation of two or three doesn't work, if they're still defensive, if they still don't bend, and by the way, I want to ask all of us here this morning, are you less defensive when you're attacked by two or three people? How many of you are less defensive? Not, I wouldn't say I'm strong enough to be less defensive when attacked by multiple people. But just to make sure they really know that they've done wrong, then it says to air their dirty laundry to the whole church, right? Isn't that in verse 17? If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And sometimes we really revel in telling it to the church because we know that we can get rid of our problem by doing so. Because that's what this passage tells us, right? It says, tell it to the church, and if they refuse to listen to the church, then treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Does this sound like the gospel to you? Good news to anyone? Maybe if you're the one who's winning, right? Who's winning the argument, but certainly not if you're the one that's being treated as a pagan or a tax collector. It sounds kind of scary to me. Maybe some of you have even experienced this. I know that I've seen it happen in my church, and for some reason, it bothers me. 
I think the reason it bothers me is because I know Jesus. I could probably know him better, and I could probably do a lot better in my reflection of his character. Couldn't we all? But I know Jesus, and something just doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound like Jesus to throw someone out. It doesn't sound like what he would tell his people to do. And in fact, if you look at the context of this passage in Matthew chapter 18, there are some parables right here in this same chapter that sandwich this text that seem to contradict our conclusion and our approach to conflict resolution in Matthew 18. So let's just look at it really quickly. The first one is from our scripture reading. If you were listening, you heard uh, Cindy read about the parable of the shepherd and the sheep. So there's a shepherd that has 100 sheep, and how many wander off? One. One sheep wanders off, and the shepherd's response to that is to go and to find that one and to save it. And it says that the, the shepherd rejoices more over that one than the 99 that never wandered away. And right after we read that parable, the very next verse says, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and show them their fault. And if they listen to you, you have won your brother or sister over. It's, it's illustrating the story of the shepherd and the sheep. And right after this section of scripture, right after 15 to 17, there is another story, another parable that follows right on its heels. In response to Peter's question, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answers, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. And then Jesus tells the parable of the unforgiving servant. And I'm sure that you've heard it. So the servant has a master who is collecting his debt, and the debt that the servant owes is a huge sum of money, something to the tune of 10 years' wages. How would you like to owe, to owe 10 years' wages? That's not a good position to be in, especially if someone's trying to collect on that debt, right? But the servant begs for mercy, and what does the master do? Not only does he promise to give time to pay the debt, he forgives the debt completely. He wipes out a 10 years salary worth of debt. And what would we do with that kind of forgiveness? Wouldn't we rejoice? But what does the servant do with that kind of forgiveness? Well, he promptly goes out and he finds a fellow servant that owes him $10. And he's so eager to get his $10 that he chokes the man and threatens him and has him thrown in prison because he cannot pay his debt. Does that sound like a, gra a grateful servant? And when the master hears about it, he's not happy. So he calls that ungrateful servant back into his presence and he says, because you have been unmerciful, you now will go to prison until you can pay your debt. And verse 35 says, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. So I read these parables 
And I think to myself, and I wonder how in the world, between the parable of the shepherd and the lost sheep, and the parable of the unforgiving servant, that come right before and right after Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17, that we use to disfellowship people from the church. I'm wondering how in the world we can read this passage between these two stories and interpret it the way that we do. How do we read this and get to the bottom and say, and if they still refuse to do what we want them to do, and if they haven't been ashamed enough in front of the whole church community and turned from their wicked ways, then what you should do is treat them like a pagan or a tax collector. Well, that's what it says, isn't it? How do we interpret that? That we are justified to cut that person off. That we can disfellowship them. That we can kick them out. That we can break off our relationship with them. Tell them that they're not good enough to be included because we follow Matthew 18. After all, it's Jesus himself who's speaking in this chapter. But I have a problem with this interpretation because I feel that there's a major disconnect between the two stories that are on the either side of this one and the conclusion that we have arrived at in our church. And by the way, it's not only our church that uses Matthew 18, 15 to 17 in this way. It is a very common way to approach conflict resolution and church discipline. It is not just our church. But because of that disconnect, and because we have used this text to justify treating people with contempt and to abandon relationships or to throw people out of the church, something doesn't seem right. Something has to be wrong. And, and the only way that I can think for us to see it right is to look at it again through Jesus' eyes. What did Jesus mean when he said, treat them like you would a pagan or a tax collector? Well, first of all, Jesus knows the general cultural opinion about pagans and tax collectors, especially from within his religious community, the religious community of his time. I don't know which group uh, in society that you think it's okay to look down on or hate, but if we're honest with ourselves, we all have one. We all have a group that we think it's okay to look down on or even to hate. We have that group of people that we think is the lowest on the totem pole of society. And for many of the Jews of Jesus' time, it was the tax collectors. They were the lowest of the low, worse than the pagans even, because they were Jews who collected taxes for the pagans. They were working for the Romans to collect taxes from the Jews. They were also well known for their, their greedy and unscrupulous business practices. They weren't considered nice people, and they weren't considered honest people. So to compare someone to a tax collector would have been a pretty huge insult. And Jesus does just that in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we've been here in our church in a series on the Sermon on the Mount. We're taking a break from that today. But the Sermon on the Mount sets a compelling description for what the kingdom of heaven 
is like. And as we've been learning in this sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, God's kingdom is in stark contrast to the kingdoms of this world, is it not? It's very different. And Jesus tells us here, if we really want to be our Heavenly Father's children, then we need to go way beyond the minimum requirements of outward religion. And right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, we'll go there just briefly, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48, Jesus is talking about loving our enemies. And he says, you have heard that it is said, love your neighbor as yourself and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. So what does Jesus mean? He continues by saying that if you only love those who love you, then you're no better than a tax collector, because even a tax collector can do that. And if you only greet and welcome those that are part of your group, then you're no better than a pagan, because even a pagan does that. He's saying, you look down on pagans and tax collectors, but you're really no better than they are if you only love those who love you, or you only greet and welcome those that already belong. Because even those that you view as the lowest of society can do those things. It doesn't make you special. It doesn't make you a child of God to love those who love you and to welcome those who welcome you. As God's children, we are not going to pick and choose who we love and who we greet. That love and that welcome is intended to go to everyone, even your enemy, and to those who offend you personally and who persecute you just like the blessings of sunshine and rain that God gives to the planet Earth, they go to all of his children. The sun and the rain go to the good and to the bad, to those who love him and those who don't, to those who worship him and walk in his ways and to those who don't. The same sun rose on all of us this morning, did it not? But if we aren't willing to give to our enemy what we would willingly give to our friend or what God has willingly given to us, then maybe we haven't really understood who God is and who he is calling us to be as his children. So how does Jesus treat pagans and tax collectors? Well, Matthew chapter 9 gives us a great illustration of this. And in fact, the whole book of Matthew is filled with all kinds of interactions that Jesus has with people who would be considered pagans, sinners, and tax collectors. But for the sake of time, we'll just stick to this one story that will give us a nice view into how Jesus treats pagans and tax collectors. So here in Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 9, it tells the story of a man named Matthew. Does that name sound familiar? Well, that's the gospel that we're in right now. In fact, this gospel in Matthew chapter 18 were recorded by this very man. The man Matthew, whose story it is. So I I'm, want I'm to ask you, do you think that as Matthew is writing down and recording the record of the gospel, that it has meaning to him as a person? 
And do you think that it adds something to the way that he writes and understands this story because of who he is? I believe that it does. So here's what happens with Matthew. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting where? At the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Well, we already talked about the tax collectors. These were not considered people that you wanted to be friends with if you wanted to have social standing. It was okay to hate these people because they were so far outside of what was acceptable within the religious community and even what was outside of accept, what was acceptable outside of the social community. These weren't just religious rejects, these tax collectors. They were social rejects. They weren't just outcasts from the church. They were outcasts because all of society had decided that it was okay to hate these people. But here's how Jesus treats them. He comes up to the tax collector's booth and he says, follow me. And Matthew got up and he followed him. I think that Matthew must have been thinking, this is a chance that's not going to come along very often. Because people like him don't invite people like me. I don't get invited by people like him. And where does he follow Jesus to? Well, Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. That's what it says. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Who came and ate with him? Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples at Matthew's house. So how does Jesus treat tax collectors and sinners? He invites them. He includes them. He fellowships with them. He parties with them. He honors them with his presence. And how do the church people respond in this story? Verse 11 tells us, When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And I wonder whose eyes are we looking through? When we come to the conclusion that we come to with Matthew 18, 15 to 17, when it says treat them like a tax collector or a sinner. Are we looking through Jesus' eyes? Or are we looking through the eyes of the Pharisee that says, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Aren't we supposed to go to them and point out their sin? Aren't we supposed to tell them how wrong they are? And if they don't look and act just like us, we can exclude them. What is he doing over there? He's not supposed to fellowship with these people. He's supposed to disfellowship these people. And on hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners 
I've come to call whom? Sinners. I have come to call sinners. I have come to invite sinners. I have come to sit with sinners. I have come to eat with sinners. I have come to include sinners. That's what Jesus says. And when Matthew 18 verse 15 says, and when your brother or sister sins against you, Are we going to respond from our worldly, pharisaical point of view? Or are we going to respond from Jesus' point of view? How do we respond to sinners? Now, I've seen how Jesus responds to the sinner, pagan, the tax collector. We've also seen that Matthew himself, who is recording this story, is one of the ones that Jesus invited. So I wonder when Matthew was listening to Jesus speak and tell the parable about the shepherd and the sheep and about the unforgiving servant. And right there in the middle, as Jesus is teaching about what to do when one of your brothers or sisters sins or maybe even sins against you and offends you personally, and he gets down to the very bottom of what Jesus has to say And he says, treat them like a pagan or a tax collector. What do you think Matthew heard when he heard those words come out of Jesus' mouth? Do you think that Matthew had forgotten who he was? Do you think that he heard Jesus saying that he should be excluded? Do you think that he felt judged and ashamed of who he was all over again? We don't have to guess what Matthew thought of himself because very conveniently in Matthew chapter 10, Matthew is writing about the disciples going out to be missionaries and he lists all of their names, the names of the 12 disciples. And as he goes down the list, he comes to his own name. And you'll find it in Matthew chapter 10 verse 3. He comes to his own name and he doesn't only list his name. He lists himself as who? Matthew, the tax collector. Matthew has certainly not forgotten who he was. And he knows that by religion's rules and that by society's rules, he is not supposed to be invited. He is not supposed to be included. He was out. He was out of the religious community, out of the social community, but somehow Jesus still invited him him, Matthew, the tax collector. I wonder if sometimes we feel justified shutting other people out or excluding other people because we have forgotten that we don't deserve to be invited. None of us deserves to be invited. None of us deserves to be included. We have all been adopted because we were sinners, Gentiles, pagans, the lowest on the totem pole. That's what we were. But now because we have been invited by Jesus Christ, you are a child of God. I think that we forget that when someone else's sin is more obvious than our own. When we can have a convincing argument against someone else and justify ourselves when we can convince the church that they don't belong, 
And that breaks my heart. And I think it breaks Jesus' heart. That we are sometimes like the unforgiving servant because we have forgotten how much we have been forgiven. We have forgotten how little we deserve. So we can point our finger at someone else and say, they deserve less than I do. So I wonder as we look at this passage, as we see how Jesus acts, and then we get to that part that says, treat them like a tax collector or a pagan. I wonder if it changes our perspective. How do we deal with sinners? We don't ignore sin, do we? Because there are two ways to dishonor God. Probably many more than just two, but we're going to talk about these two. Two opposite extremes. Number one would be to completely ignore sin and treat it like it's okay. And not help people get liberated from that. That that dishonors God when we don't call sin by its rightful name. But the other one is in the name of Jesus Christ that we alienate, banish, and exclude people from the kingdom of heaven. To me, these equally dishonor God. They equally dishonor him. And we don't want to do that. Do we? I think it requires us to take off the lenses that we have pasted on our faces from our church tradition, from the way that we've been brought up, from whatever other thing has shaded our ability to see through the eyes of Jesus Christ. And we need to go back to Jesus so that we can understand what he is telling us with the words that were spoken from his mouth, treat them like a pagan or a tax collector. And this is what I think it means. Treat them with great grace, with inclusion, with invitation, until they can have an encounter with Jesus that changes their lives. If we treat them with accusation and with rejection and with exclusion, how will they ever come to God? They won't come to us, and they certainly won't come to Him. I've heard horror stories of people that have been banished from the church or hurt for a lifetime. And that, my friends, goes generations deep. But what also goes generations deep is with, when someone is loved and embraced and included and accepted, especially at that critical time in their lives when they're slipping down the hill. If we show them grace then grace goes generations deep. Some of us are probably sitting here today because grace was shown to someone in our family that came before us. I doubt that most of us are here because someone was pointing an accusing finger at our ancestors, don't you? It's not our job to exclude and to disfellowship, but to reveal the loving, accepting grace of God and to invite and to eat, and to fellowship, and to bring the presence of Christ into each other's lives. And yes, we are going to call sin what it is, but with one end in mind. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. And if they're genuinely your friend, they're going to know that you're coming in love, 
aren't they? Point out their sin, and if they listen to you, what have you done? You have won them over. That's the goal. To win them over. Not to strong arm them into repentance, but to win them over with grace and with love. And by the way, if they don't believe you when you go by yourself and say, hey, I want you. I don't want to lose you. I, I want to continue relating to you. I want to have you as part of my family. I want you. If they don't believe that, then take two others along with you. Not to accuse, but to bear witness to the fact that you want them, that they're included, that Jesus loves them, that this choice is not the best for their lives, but you're not going to give up on them. That's what you're going to do with two or three others, not going to convince them that they're wrong. They probably already know that. And you pointing your finger at them isn't helping. Tell them that you love them and say, if you don't believe me, here's two or three of us. We want you. We want you. And if that show of grace doesn't work, if they still refuse to listen, then tell the whole church. Tell the church we have not loved this person enough. We have not invited this person enough. We have not shown enough grace to this person. We have not supported them and stood by them. They don't know their value. We have not done enough. Tell this to the church so that not so that the church can sit in judgment and raise their hands to vote to, to kick them out, but so that the church can pour out their love and their grace in the name of Jesus Christ in order to win them over. And then, if they still refuse to listen, and by this time I think it would be pretty hard, don't you? With that outpouring of love and, and feeling valued, I think it'd be pretty tough by then. But if they still refuse to listen, then Jesus says, treat them like you would a pagan or a tax collector. And what does Jesus mean? I think he means let grace go all the way. Because to treat someone as a pagan or a tax collector means that I give up my expectation that they would live their lives like a believer. I liberate them from that and I pursue them with all the grace that Jesus pursued the pagan and the tax collector. I go to their house. I meet with their friends. I fellowship with them in the circle where they live. That's what Jesus does with the pagan and the tax collector. And then he says, look, if the whole church loving them doesn't work, then go after them like you would a pagan or a tax collector. Don't let them go until they see my grace, until they believe that they are invited, until they believe that I came to call sinners, until they believe that they are included until their lives are changed. Don't give up on them until then. And even then, isn't it Jesus who said, for surely I am with you always. Jesus isn't giving up on us. And he's not giving up on them. He's asking us as his children, do not give up on each other. So here's my question for us this morning. What does Jesus mean? What does he mean to treat them like a pagan 
or a tax collector? Does he mean that if people sin or offend us that we have the right to throw them out and to treat them like an outcast? I don't believe that anymore. I used to. Or does he mean that we abandon our expectation for them to behave like believers and we show them an overwhelming amount of grace? That we let grace go all the way. I know which one I see when I'm looking through his eyes.